welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get started. Opioids, the powerful pain-killing drugs, are important tools for managing pain, but they also come with some serious side effects that many Americans are now familiar with. For some, that includes dependence and addiction. Today, we're talking with someone who has firsthand experience with both sides of these medicines. In May of 2015, Travis Reeder was hit by a van when he was out for a motorcycle ride. His bike crushed his left foot. The accident and the half-dozen surgeries he needed to save his foot left the 33-year-old with pain that was excruciating and terrifying. Doctors gave him large doses of opioids to get through it, but when he tried to stop taking them, he found there was no one to really help him find a safe way to taper down his doses. Instead, he went into withdrawal. He's written a book called In Pain about his struggle with the medicines and the healthcare system that's grappling with how to manage them. He's a research scholar and the director of the Master of Bioethics degree program at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Dr. Reeder, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great to be on. We're very glad to talk to you. Describe the kinds of injuries you had after your accident. The most kind of obvious and damaging injury was all confined to my left foot. And so I was struck on the left side of my motorcycle by the van. And what we think happened is that my foot was actually crushed between the bumper of the van and the fairing or the, the plastic bit of the motorcycle. But then I got tossed off the bike and the bike actually landed on top of that same leg. So some combination of these impacts resulted in the first three bones, the first, second, and third metatarsals of my left foot breaking. And the first one in particular shattered and basically blew a hole out the inside and bottom of my foot. So there was obviously a lot of bone damage. Um, there were shards of bone everywhere. You know, the x-rays are pretty painful to look at even just as an x-ray. But what was really kind of catastrophic was that it caused so much soft tissue damage. That's what put me into this limb salvage situation because the, the trauma surgeon basically assumed that he was not going to be able to revascularize this tissue and that most of it would die. And he thought you might have to lose your foot. That didn't turn out to be the case, but um, that was a possibility at the time. Yeah, that was definitely a possibility. And it actually remained a possibility for the better part of six weeks or so. So basically, even after the foot was stabilized, the, the initial trauma surgeon was an orthopedist. And so he was charged with pulling all these bone shards together, trying to get them close enough to where they would, you know, re-stitch into something like a bone structure. But then I still had this very, very large wound in my foot. So something I'd never thought of as, as a non-healthcare practitioner was that, you know, not all soft tissue wounds can just be closed or stitched. You know, when you lose so much flesh, you have to do something about it. And so for the first four weeks after the accident, I had a, a wound back, so a negative pressure device attached to my foot. This, this hole was packed with sponge and negative pressure was applied to try to granulate the tissue and prepare for, for some kind of transplant. And the initial idea was to use a skin graft, but the wound just got far too big for that. So the fifth surgery was actually the real big one. And that was a free flap surgery for my left thigh. So they took skin, muscle, fat to fill and cover the hole. And then an artery was microsurgically transplanted to vascularize that tissue. And they actually even took a nerve and microsurgically transplanted that so that I would eventually have some sensation in the foot so that I would be able to sense, you know, danger, et cetera. So back to the day of the accident, you got your first dose of opioids in the ambulance when the paramedics gave you morphine on the way to the hospital. And then you had six surgeries in just a couple of months to repair your foot and your leg. 
you were obviously in some incredible pain after those, um, especially the, the fifth one that you just described. Tell us about the types and amounts of pain medicine that you started taking after those surgeries. Yeah, so it was a, it was a slow build of a combination. So you're exactly right. We started with morphine in the ambulance. Basically, as soon as I got to the hospital, they switched over to fentanyl, uh, intravenous fentanyl. And then what really became the standard drug after surgical procedures was IV hydromorphone. And so, you know, in the immediate aftermath of any of the surgeries, I'd be in the hospital for anywhere from five to 10 days. And the, the main obstacle to getting out of the hospital was getting to the point where my pain was controlled only by oral medication so that I, I wouldn't still be stuck to an IV, basically. So after the first couple surgeries, the doses of hydromorphone were escalating, but I was also on oxycodone. And pretty quickly, that was divided into two forms. I would get oxycontin, so the extended release formulation, twice a day. And then I would get oxycodone that I could take every four hours between those doses. And then after the surgeries, I would also be on the IV hydromorphone. For people who may not be familiar. Is there a good way to describe the strength of those different medications? Fentanyl is is ex extremely powerful, but so are, so are the others as well. Yeah. So the way I tended to think about it was if I was in really excruciating pain, and this happened a few times, it happened the first night I was in the hospital after all the surgeons had left and I was really getting behind the pain. And then again, after the fifth surgery, that big free flap surgery, those were the two times that I felt really seriously under medicated and the pain spiraled out of control. And that first night in the hospital was actually the only time I ever reported a 10 on the pain scale because I just couldn't imagine it getting any worse. And I was thinking about, you know, I'm going to have to smash my head against the wall to escape this reality. And those pains really only responded to significant doses of IV medication. If you take, you know, an oxycodone, which at the time, you know, I didn't have any tolerance yet. So I was probably taking, you know, 10 milligrams of oxycodone or something. It just barely even took the sharpest of the edge off. Whereas if you got hydromorphone directly into the vein, you know, I would feel it wash over my brain basically and everything would kind of go numb and I would pretty quickly kind of either lose consciousness or float away into the kind of pseudo consciousness. So the IV medication really had a different impact because it came on so quickly and it was so potent compared to something like oral oxycodone. Okay, okay. That's a good way to help us visualize the different types of these medicines. So after you'd had most of your surgeries and you were home to recover, you were taking opioids, like you said, in, in pill form, no longer with the IV. But you began to decide that you wanted to start taking less of the pain medicine. What was it that made you want to stop? For me, it was really just that opioids are not always fun. You know, for those folks who haven't been on opioid medication before, you know, you might have the idea that like, well, opioids are also illicit drugs and they get you high and people desire these. Well, so look, I, I definitely understand the draw because they're incredible analgesics. They give incredible pain relief. And then also the, the euphoria is very real, you know, that kind of feeling of being numbed out and wrapped up in, in, you know, a warm blanket or warm water or something like I can definitely understand that as relief. But here are a bunch of other things that happen when you're on opioids. If you're on them for very long at all, you get really severe constipation. And this is such a serious side effect that, you know, my doctors and nurses were really concerned about it because they didn't want me to develop a bowel blockage and they would have to do emergency surgery. Right. So that that severe constipation really weighs on you. 
you're also sedated to some degree all the time because opioids are sedatives. And so you're not only having a hard time kind of being present and conscious if you're on the sort of doses that I'm on, it's a little bit scary, right? My partner, Sadia, you know, she would, right after I took some of these doses, she would sit by me and listen to my breathing to make sure that I didn't go too long between breaths because the if I'm medicating really severe pain, the dose was high enough that the sedation would be pretty intense. So, I mean, the, the side effects here are just very real. And after a couple of months where your entire life revolves on trying to medicate this pain and then dealing with the side effects of the medication, I was really ready to try to reclaim some of my life. Certainly, I can understand that. What happened when you brought this up with your doctors? I think in your book, you wrote that you first talked about wanting to start tapering the pain medicine off with your orthopedic surgeon. Is that correct? Kind of, yeah. So I had a check-in with the trauma surgeon. You know, he was going to see how the bone stitching was doing because only two months out, I certainly wasn't doing any weight bearing. And as I was in for kind of a routine x-ray and I was fairly proud of myself that I had kind of started stretching a bit between doses because no one had said anything to me over the course of all of these weeks. The only sort of warning I got about my dose was to make sure I didn't get behind the pain because that was a very scary experience to think that you didn't have enough opioid medication to catch you up to this really severe pain. And so I really watched the clock, you know, for two months, every four hours, I was popping the next pill. So I was actually fairly proud of myself that self-initiated, I had started to spread out, you know, five or maybe six hours between doses. And so I reported this to him and he looked at the dosage that I was on and got very serious and said, that's, that's really much too high. You know, you're two months out from the accident. You need to get off the meds now. So it was a very strange and very sobering experience because I, I was fairly proud of myself. No one had said anything to me, and, and I had just thought, well, I can do this on my own. And, <laughs> and his reaction was, oh, you should have done that a long time ago. This is a wow. bad situation. You might be in some trouble here. So after you spoke to him, his suggestion was for you to go to the doctor who actually did the prescribing of the opioids, which was your plastic surgeon. So what did he say about letting you taper down on the opioids? Yeah, by contrast to the trauma surgeon, he was much more sanguine. He didn't seem concerned at all when I said, you know, hey, this doc said it's time to go. Um, he's like, oh, sure. You know, if you think you're ready, if your pain's under control, we can start that. But we should have realized very early on that he really just didn't know what he was doing. Because when we asked him, you know, how do we stop taking the meds? This other doc said, we can't stop cold turkey, that I'd go into withdrawal. He didn't really seem to reflect on it or, or give any indication that he thought it mattered very much. So he was just kind of offhand. He's like, oh, you know, take your daily dose and divide it into four and then drop one quarter of your current daily dose each week. And you'll be off in a month, and that should be that should be good. So it was very strange, the difference in experience between the trauma surgeon and the plastic surgeon, because the trauma surgeon was so worried, but had zero advice. And the plastic surgeon was not worried at all, and he gave me terrible advice. Right. <laughs> you learned later that that was the wrong advice that he gave you. Yeah, it turns out that that's just a really aggressive tapering regimen, and, you know, maybe if I was a different patient and I, you know, was very unsensitive to dependence formation and withdrawal, maybe I would have been able to taper that way without so much discomfort. Um, but, but yeah, the general lesson I would eventually learn from the literature and from experts in the area is that it's far too fast to taper someone who's got any kind of dependence on opioids at all. Okay. 
So you followed the advice that the doctor gave you on how to taper off, you know, dividing the doses into four and then dropping one. But that actually, that did in fact send you into withdrawal. And I don't think that anybody, that's an experience that you can't really understand unless you've been through it. So tell us what that felt like. Yeah. You know, this is, this is really what changed my life so much because when I went into withdrawal, I experienced this, this suffering that I had never known even existed. I certainly hadn't realized that this is what withdrawal was like. And then much, much later when I reflected on it, I would realize that nobody else seems to really know that this is how bad withdrawal is either. So yeah, a big part of why I, I began this as a, you know, a focus of my own research is precisely because I want people to know how bad it is. And so the, the kind of general lesson is if your idea of what withdrawal is, is what you've seen on TV or the movies where, you know, somebody who takes heroin regularly goes into detox and, you know, they shake and they sweat for a couple nights, you know, for a few minutes on screen. And then thank God they fall asleep and wake up the next morning feeling better. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not what withdrawal is like, right? <laughs> Hmm. There's the physiological component, which does look a little bit like that. So I, I tell people, you know, imagine the worst flu you've ever had in your life and now multiply it by about a thousand and that approximates the physical symptoms of withdrawal. So you get the shakes and sweats and goosebumps and nausea and diarrhea and all of this happens at once. And then you add to that this weird sort of jitteriness. Um, and so if you imagine that withdrawal is you know, the opposite of a drug's effects, well, opioids are sedatives. And so the opposite of this sedation is a kind of weird, shaky, jittery hyperactivity that, that, you know, feeds into insomnia. So the result of all this physiological stuff is you feel sicker than you've ever felt in your life and you sleep very, very little. And so you're just miserably sick around the clock. And, you know, eventually I just felt like I was experiencing it 24 hours a day. So I'd never get any reprieve from it. And that happens pretty quick. You know, opioids have a relatively short half-life, most of them. And so 12 hours, you know, after my first drop dose, I, would, I got sick. But then it also gets worse each time you drop a dose. And then eventually you have to, eventually you have to drop everything. Eventually you have to go from something to nothing. If you have 100% drop. And so every time you make another drop to try to taper down, it gets even harder. And so the experience is not only one of, of real misery, but it's progressively worse. And so as you're getting exhausted from fighting this fight, you also just keep facing even, and even worse hurdles. So the, the other half of it is, you know, besides these physiological kind of flu-like symptoms, after the first week, after I dropped my second dose, I also started getting psychological symptoms. And so, again, the opposite of a drug's effects. So instead of having the euphoria that you get from opioids, you get some kind of dysphoria. And, and some folks describe it as anxiety. Some folks describe it as depression. And for me, it was just crushing depression. And I started crying all the time and believing that I was just hopelessly broken. How long did this go on? I mean, you took, you know, a, you dropped a dose every week, so that would be four weeks to get you down to zero. So you went through this for about a month? Yeah, almost exactly a month. And each time we had to drop another dose, we would revisit the decision, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously th this was so bad and the suffering was so bad that, that we started calling our my doctors almost immediately. And Nobody would give us any real advice. And my prescribing doctor, 
you know, initially was just really unconcerned. He's like, yeah, you know, some nausea is normal, you know, just try to, you know, drink lots of fluids. Like you had the flu or something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then a lot of my other doctors just wouldn't even talk to me. And that includes pain docs, you know, who, who helped prescribe these medications to me. And so every week we had to decide whether we're going to stick to this plan or not. And pretty quickly, my prescribing doc, who was one person we could always get on the phone, pretty quickly, quickly he got scared enough by our description of my symptoms that he just said, look, I'm out of my depth here. I'm sorry that I gave you, you know, what was clearly bad advice. You just need to go back on the meds now, stabilize, and find somebody else who's more competent to help you wean off. He told you to start taking the opioids again so you would not have the withdrawal symptoms anymore. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And, and obviously that was an attractive thought to me because I'm absolutely miserable. But here's the thing that we had to think every, every month or every week as we decide whether or not to drop another dose, right? So either I go back on the medication to relieve the withdrawal symptoms, or I don't drop another dose and hope that it gets better, or I drop another dose and try to finish this thing. And I just didn't have any information on what any of those meant. And so if I go back on the medication, well, so I feel pretty confident I can mitigate these symptoms, but I already believe by week two, I already believe this was so miserable that if I ever had to make myself do it again, I just wouldn't be able to bring myself to do it. Right. And so then if, if I just stayed at the current dose and tried to write it out, I didn't know how long the symptoms were going to last. And so maybe all I'm going to do is prolong my misery. Right. And nobody, nobody would educate us. Nobody would tell us, you know, what we should expect or how we could make it better. And so every week we'd revisit it. And Sadia would say, I'm with you. Whatever you decide to do, I support it, you. And I'd look at her and say, if I don't get off these medications, like, I'm just going to go back on them and I'm going to stay that way forever. I just can't make myself do this again. And so we stuck to the plan every time because we just felt like we had no other option. This is a good point to, to sort of check in with what should have happened, right? So what was the advice and care that you should have gotten to taper off opioids? And also, why was it so hard for you to get that information from any of the doctors who treated you? Yeah. So as, as you hint at, like, this is the question that occupied me, well, for the last four years now, and it's why I wrote this book. And so first things first, my first conversation about this should never have waited until it was time to taper, right? Because mm -hmm. on May 23rd of 2015, when I got hit by a van on my motorcycle, from that moment on, it was apparent to any clinician that I was interacting with that I was going to be on heavy-duty pain meds for a pretty long time. And that's more than long enough to develop dependence. So a bunch of things really ought to have happened right up front. I should have been educated about the benefits and risks, right? I should have been told um, about dependence formation and withdrawal. So all that information should have just been included up front. And what that would have allowed me to do, probably not on day one or two or even five, but as I started to get out of the most acute stage of the trauma, it would have allowed me and my family to discuss how aggressively to care for my pain, because the only advice I was given was to treat it as aggressively as possible so that I never got behind the pain. And when I went home and was no longer in daily contact with clinicians, I just took that forward with me every day, popping pills every four hours. And what I really should have been doing is I should have been constantly evaluating how much of this pain should I medicate and how much should I live with and, and what's possible for me to live with, right? So you take all of that kind of 
education and counseling that should have happened up front. And then somebody also needed to know what was the ultimate plan for getting me off the medication. And because I was going to be on it long enough to develop dependence and withdrawal, I needed to have a reasonable tapering schedule. And here, just some basic information would help most patients like me. And that basic information is, look, if you start at 5 to 10% dose reduction per week or even every two weeks, or if their patient is really sensitive, even four weeks, right, that 5 to 10% every one or two or four weeks dose reduction, that by itself as a tapering schedule can mitigate a lot of the suffering that comes with withdrawal. But And to put that in perspective, you were doing 25% as opposed to the 5 or 10%, which is the goal. Exactly. Exactly right. And do you think it was simply that your doctors didn't know any of this? They just didn't have the information? Or do you think it was that they didn't have a system in which to deliver you that care? I think my prescribing physician, I think it was clearly a lack of information. He was warm. He was compassionate. He was worried about me. And he straight up admitted that he just didn't know what he was doing because this wasn't his job. But then a lot of other physicians didn't want to touch me with a 10-foot pole. You know, we couldn't even talk to the doctors or talk to the surgeon. You know, we find we hit the guardians at the front desk. You know, the receptionist would keep us from ever talking to anyone. And they hear withdrawal symptoms, and they hear, I've been on opioids for this long time, and now I can't get off them. And they think, oh, addiction, opioid crisis. I don't want to deal with mm-hmm. these patients. And I think that just has a lot to do with stigma, right? It has to do with the fact that, Doctors don't want to deal with complex pain and addiction patients, that they're really stigmatized. And so there's a real keep you at arm's length sense with that. You talked about how you encountered a couple of reactions from healthcare professionals, even when you were still in the hospital, when you asked for more pain medicine. Some of them were very sympathetic and were willing to give you more pain medicine and others. You said you felt like you were being treated like a suspect or like you were doing something wrong. What do you think that says about where the medical community is at in their mindset about these drugs? Well, yeah, it's this really crazy commentary on where we are, you know, capital W, we, healthcare community, society, regarding opioids, isn't it? Because we have a generation of physicians who were trained in, say, the late 90s, early 2000s, who were kind of trained in the moment of pain advocacy. And Physicians trained in that moment are were told to stop torturing their patients, right? If you if you don't treat pain aggressively, you're torturing your patients by omission. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the late 2000s, we start to see the effect that that really aggressive prescribing has had, which is this massive uptick in opioid overdose death. And so we start to get the language of opioid epidemic. We start to see think pieces and op-eds. And politicians are worried about it. And then all of a sudden doctors in training are being told, stop killing your patients with these dangerous medications. And so in the same hospital, you are likely to get different clinicians who have either a really pro-opioid, very aggressive treatment of pain attitude, and other physicians who have a very, you know, anti-opioid kind of suspicious attitude because they've been brought up to, to think, brought up kind of intellectually, to think that anyone asking for these medications are likely to be drug-seeking or malingering. And so it's this really crazy moment because both of those attitudes are bad. So this is me as as an ethicist now kind of putting my professional hat on. Mm -hmm. You know, giving out opioids like candy when they're, you know, risky and addictive and dangerous, well, that's bad. It, It helps spark an epidemic. 
So withholding medication and treating everybody who's in pain and asking for relief as if they were a drug seeker, as if they were, you know, not to be trusted, well, that's not great either. So what it really says to me is that we are having an awfully hard time coming up with a nuanced, patient-centered, compassionate response to pain. What do you think it's going to take to sort of find the middle ground between those two perspectives and address the problem with opioids that, that currently exists? Honestly, I think it has to start with education because right now, as far as I can tell, you know, I, I work at Johns Hopkins with lots of clinicians who are very kind to let me pick their brain. And I travel around the country giving talks at healthcare centers, and, and my hosts are very kind to let me pick their brain. And as far as I can tell, in, in any recent era, whether it was kind of pro-opioid or anti-opioid, what has been the case is that we've, we've taught physicians that pain management isn't hard for the most part. So there are a few doctors who are, who are supposed to deal with the hard cases, and so those are the pain docs, and they, they work out of specialty clinics, right? But every single doctor who, you know, does anything that's not hyper-specialized in another area sees patients come in for pain, and not just doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs in, in different institutes, right? People with prescribing authority uh, with, for opioids have all these patients come in and complain of pain, and we treat it as if it's something that you don't have to have a lot of education, you don't have to have specialty knowledge for. And the way I keep thinking about it is we kind of treat opioids like antibiotics. They're either called for or they're not, and anybody who's been to medical school can tell the difference. If it's bacterial, you give antibiotics. If it's viral, you don't, and it's not very complicated. And the problem with that view is that pain is really complicated, and opioids are really complicated. And just now, in 2019, we are only finally getting some of the data that will give us an evidence base for how to treat pain, when to use opioids, when to use you know, integrative pain medicine techniques, when exercise is likely to be useful, when NSAIDs and Tylenol are likely to be useful, right? Like we're only now getting the evidence base that will actually allow us to make educated decisions. So I think that having the evidence base and then having the education and, and requiring the education has got to be the most important part. But then we also have to get clinicians to recognize that this is a responsibility. And so we talk about tapering and all the counseling that should go into giving somebody a medication like opioid. Think of all the clinicians that you know and think about how much time it would take out of their life if every time they wrote a script for opioid, they thought they needed to do all this education, counseling, follow-up, monitoring, and tapering. So yeah, there's also just going to have to be a sense that this is somebody's responsibility and we have to figure out who that is, but it's got to be someone's responsibility. They got to be educated on it. They got to know that it's their responsibility and take it seriously. So those are like pretty big picture wish list items, but I, I just don't think they're negotiable. We're not going to do responsible pain medicine without them. I want to ask you about the perspective that your profession gave you on what happened to you personally, because that's a pretty unique circumstance that not everyone would have. You are a bioethicist. Could you just kind of briefly describe what that means to someone who may not necessarily understand. A pretty good summary of something like bioethics is the field that investigates the ethical and policy issues raised by science, medicine, public health, um, you know, well, issues raised by science, medicine, public health, we'll put it that way. Very often I'm working alongside MDs, 
PhDs in public health and other fields, et cetera. So it's this multidisciplinary space where we're trying to identify and address these difficult issues that arise. And how long was it before you started to see what happened to you through that lens? What was that process like for you? It was a long, slow dawning. And so, you know, I made it through that month of withdrawal and I eventually did escape. And for a little while, I kind of let myself bask in the, you know, the gratitude and the joy of being, you know, on the road to health again. And then pretty quickly, I just got angry because I looked back at the suffering that I went through and, and how many people turned their backs on me. But the anger started off as pretty unsophisticated. I was angry at my very specific clinicians because it seemed to me they'd failed to live up to some responsibility they had to me. And so for a while, I just kind of had this unhelpful, unsophisticated anger that I didn't talk to a lot of people about because it was attached to this very private trauma that I'd been through. And then slowly, eventually, Saudi and I started sharing with enough family and friends that I got a little bit more accustomed to telling my story and to seeing the case a little bit more objectively, as a little more detached. And it was in those conversations that I started to think I could have a really unique voice here because my job is to think about things like clinician responsibility and, you know, just healthcare structures. And then I, I've been a patient and I've seen the gaps in the healthcare system and I've seen the harm that can result. But what happened is when I wrote that first essay that got, that got picked up pretty aggressively, and then I got all these invitations where all of these people who could really make a difference, you know, hospital administrators, policymakers, clinicians, they really wanted to hear from me. And I realized that any patient could give them a lot of the information that I could give them, but they weren't asking any patient because I have a PhD and I work at Johns Hopkins. And so it gave me this kind of credential to enter this conversation. And when I realized that, when I realized that I could speak on behalf of people whose voices normally wouldn't be heard, um, well, that, that realization seemed to come with a lot of responsibility. And so I decided that for as long as I possibly could, I would tell my story and talk about it and try to draw lessons from it. So that's what I do now. You actually had to go back on opioids after you went through withdrawal because you still had one more surgery, the final sixth surgery to repair your foot. So what were you able to do differently to prepare? And what was it like knowing that you were going to have to start taking these drugs again uh, to, to just get through the pain of the surgery? Yeah, that was terrifying. Um, it was so terrifying that I actually didn't agree to the surgery for a while. So yeah, the, the first five surgeries had been done. The foot was, was salvaged. Um, but it was very, very misshapen, um, and so I needed to have the sixth plastic surgery to reshape it. And this sort of plastic surgery is, is just intensely painful. They cut away a lot of extra tissue, you know, basically restitch the entire wound. And so that really sharp tissue pain is is really it's pretty tough to put up with. And so I had asked a couple of my colleagues who, who I was close with, you know, can I can I get through this surgery without opioids? Because I was so scared of taking them again. 
And, and the answer was basically, don't do that. Sure, it's possible. I mean, we didn't have opioids for a long time, and people did, you know, endure lots of pain. But this is going to be awful. You really, really want opioids for this. And so then I had to make this decision. Yeah, would I allow them to cut into me again, knowing that I would need these medications? And the way that I, I handled it was I exploited my access by virtue of where I work and, and colleagues that I have. And so I got introduced to a, a fantastic pain doc here at Hopkins named Michael Erdek. And he gave me way more time than I felt like I deserved and listened to my story and listened to my fears. And we had about, you know, an hour long consult between he and his residents and came up with a plan. And, and what it really came down to, my question was, can I take a small enough amount of medication irregularly enough that I won't reform dependence and I won't have to go through this again? And he thought the answer was yes, and that it was just going to be incredibly painful and that I would constantly have to weigh these various risks and benefits, but that I could ask for, you know, low-dose Percocet and take one or two when I absolutely needed it and try to avoid taking it around the clock and try to be off inside two weeks. And so he gave me confidence that I could do this, and I committed to it, and we went through the surgery, and I did it. And I'll say two things about it. One is that it was absolutely excruciating. It was far more painful than most of my other surgeries were because I was so medicated during those other surgeries uh, or after those other surgeries. Um, but also it worked. The plan worked. You know, I was able to, to pretty quickly get onto only taking opioids at night to help me sleep. And then shortly after that, discontinuing them. And there was no withdrawal at all, no, no jitters, no sweats. And so it was, it was a really anticlimactic in some ways because it was this incredibly simple advice. But the only way I could follow it when it was that hard to follow because the pain was so bad, the only way I could follow it was because I had this very visceral fear of what happens when you're too aggressive with the painkillers. So yeah, so a large part of what it taught me was just how important it is to really have a good sense of the risks and benefits because I was able to control my pain management for that six surgery, but I was only able to do it because A, I had the information and B, because I had access to somebody who was genuinely expert who was able to reassure me on how to use it well. And, you know, unfortunately, that's just not everybody's experience that they have that information or that access. What advice would you give to someone who might find themselves in your shoes? I do get this question a lot. You know, now that I have some kind of public-facing experience, I get emails from a lot of people asking these sorts of questions. And, of course, I can't give them medical advice, but I can say, look, here's what I know from the literature. Here's kind of best practices. So one is there's no reason for most patients that they need to go fast through a taper, right? They're very rare experiences where people need to detox quickly and that's handled in addiction medicine. But, you know, for routine dependence formation after surgery, after trauma, there's no reason to kind of increase the harm to oneself by trying to taper very quickly. And a lot of the withdrawal symptoms can be managed, can be mitigated by a slow, careful taper. The, the catch here is that it's just so invaluable to have a clinician who's willing to really partner with you. I mean, so just think about some of the mundane details that matter here. Getting a prescription of small enough doses that you can, you know, um, taper according to relatively small percentage reductions, right? And so if you don't have a clinician who's really partnering with you in an effort to taper and you can't get, 
you know, less than your 20 milligram OxyContin, right? Well, that's a real problem because you can't break OxyContin because it's extended release. And so you don't have a way to kind of actually drop by small dose reduction. So there, there are these things that you can tell someone like, you know, going slow is going to help a lot by itself. But what's really unfortunate is that they, they really do need that partnership with the clinician who can help them even with the details of just, you know, getting the right sort of dose. So I always encourage anyone who reaches out, like if your clinician isn't being responsive to you, then, you know, I certainly understand the difficulty of finding someone because I didn't find someone for an entire month of withdrawal. But please do look because the importance of having a clinician, you know, to partner with is just so, so high. I have to ask you, how are you feeling these days? Do you still have any pain? And if you do, how do you handle it? (laughs) It's a really good question, like right now, especially. So people always ask this question, and it kind of depends on the day. (laughs) Right, well, (laughs) Um, it's understandable. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so I've had a reconstructed foot, uh, so I'm never going to be pain-free. I was on uh, Celecoxib for a long time, better known as Celebrex, and that actually helped quite a bit. You know, people think NSAID, and they think that you know, it was basically ibuprofen, like, you know, how can that really help that much? For me, celecoxib was very, very effective. And I got to the point where I just didn't want to take any medication at all that I didn't feel like was absolutely necessary because I kind of internalized this rule, you know, first rule of pharmacology is that drugs have side effects, right? So I do kind of go back and forth between Celebrex and ibuprofen and acetaminophen, and all of them have risks, and so I try to take them as little as possible, but I do live with, you know, somewhere between little to, to fairly uncomfortable pain. The most important thing that's happened over the last four years, though, is when I was researching for my book, I wrote the epilogue on kind of integrative pain medicine and how, you know, once you move outside of opioid-centric pain medicine, what are some of the lessons that we should really be paying attention to? And I did some research that was just really mind-blowing to me about how effective integrative pain management approaches are. And one of the lessons I took from a pretty thorough review of the literature was that, look, there are no silver bullets when it comes to pain. But if there was like a kind of leading candidate for silver bullet for chronic pain, for people who can do it, it's exercise. So for me, I I kind of engaged in this experiment with myself where I was researching this and I was like, well, shame on me, you know, if I don't kind of take seriously my own work. And so I went, about three months where I really pushed myself on my, my physical therapy and I started doing what I called jogging, but it's a fairly pitiful looking shuffle. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I worked at it and it was very painful and it was very hard and I hated every minute of it. And about a month into it, I started really noticing an effect that instead of it being more painful because I was pushing it, it was getting less painful. And so I worked more and in the second month, got even better. And by the end of month three, it was closer to pain-free than I ever thought I would be after the accident. And so now I really, really try to make self-care a priority. And, you know, I have a demanding job and a five-year-old, so I suck at it like everybody does. You know, (laughs) we're all just bad at taking (laughs) self-care seriously. But the more We all have such noble expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But, you know, the more I can exercise and sleep well and eat well. So I also try to do things like get massage, which, of course, comes from a real place of privilege because not not everybody has the ability to pay for, say, professional massages. But, yeah, exercise, you know, massage, sleeping well. Like these things make a huge difference to my own pain levels. 
And so I, I try to take that to heart. Well, Dr. Travis Reeder, your book is called In Pain. We really appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And now for our Tweak of the Week. If Travis Reader's story has you worried about taking pain meds your doctor prescribes, know this. Sometimes these drugs really might be the best option, but it helps to talk with your doctor about them, either before you start taking them or once you're well enough to have the discussion. First, ask if there's an alternative. Would another type of medication work just as well? If there isn't, ask for a short-term prescription. This might be for as little as three days. Then make sure the prescribing doctor knows about any other conditions you have. Include anxiety, COPD, chronic constipation, depression, and whether you or anyone else in your family has had other addictions. Also, ask how the medications will affect your daily life. For instance, can you work or drive when you're taking opioids? Will your prescription affect other medications you take? And how will opioids affect your healing from the injury, operation, or other condition? Lastly, make sure you know what signs to watch out for and when to call your doctor about them. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.